Uh, thank you, John and Courtney, for uh, using your gift to, uh, to serve us. Appreciate that. Appreciate the song choices and uh, fits very well with what we're going to be looking at today. So begin, we'll begin with some background. It was a rags to riches story. In his early days, he worked on his father's farm, taking care of the sheep. However, by a brave act of a feat of military arms, he rose to prominence among his people. Eventually uh, led the armies, rose in the ranks, leading them to victory after victory. And after the king died, he became king. He faced a bitter civil war and was able to reunite the country under his leadership. He conquered other nations. He brought peace and prosperity to to the land. He grew rich and he grew powerful. He was well known. But he's also known as a religious leader of the people too. He wrote songs of praise to God and he led the people in worship. He stood out among the people as a man of, of great devotion to God. And it seemed the very height of his rule and reign. He fell and he had a tragic fall. His uncontrollable lusts led to adultery with the wife of one of his loyal and famous soldiers to hide this, his sin which had resulted in pregnancy He had this soldier murdered by the hands of his enemies. The king who everybody respected, everybody looked up to, was now a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. And yet, didn't bring him to repentance. He buried his sin, and he buried it for at least a year until God confronted him through the prophet, one of the prophets. Now, as I'm going through this, background here. I'm sure you may, some of you may have guessed who this is. We're talking about King David. And you can find the full record of this tragic fall in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. These chapters give the background and, uh, to this fall that David had. And it also shows David's repentance. It shows David's confession of sin and God's promise of Forgiveness, and yet at the same time, there were consequences for David too. You remember that famous time where Nathan gives the parable, and finally at the end, he says, You are the man, David. And David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed his sin. Well, that was the, the concise version of David's confession. The longer version is Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is what we're going to be looking at today. Psalm 51 was probably written very soon after David's sin, very soon after David's confession of, of sin. And, and, and you can see that. We know that look, you look at the psalm, there's, there's an intensity, a passion in this psalm. There's, there's an honesty, a, a desperateness that comes out in the psalm. In fact, the psalm has very, a lot of imperatives, a lot of requests uh, of, from, from David to the Lord, asking him to do something for him. And, and, and that those, all those requests suggest the intensity of a man who's desperate to wash himself of his sin, wash himself of his guilt. So this psalm is, it's a, it's a poetic psalm. Obviously, there's, there's, it's highly structural. There, there's, it's not like David just kind of composed this and it was sort of uh, rapidly done without much thought. This psalm here uh, is very structured, very thoughtfully written, very carefully composed. At the same time, there's a personal, part, very, it's very personal it's very honest. And you can contrast that to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, it seems to be written later on. Uh, it, it deals in a very much the same way, with the same matter as Psalm 51. Deals with, could be related even to the same sin of David. And, and yet Psalm 32 is, is less personal. It's less intense and it's more instructional. 
And so today we are going to look at Psalm 51. Let's read the psalm first together. Psalm 51. The heading reads, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are, blame, you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the inner hidden parts you will show me, you, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and in whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Before we get into the psalm, let's look a little bit at the context. I want you to see something here. That the psalms are not arranged in a haphazard way. It's not as... When this, whoever compiled all these psalms, had a, he laid them out in a certain way and, and for a certain reason. And sometimes we can see very clearly the connection between the different psalms and, and how they fit together. And sometimes we don't. In this case, Psalm 51, there is a connection between the previous psalm that I want to just draw to your attention, uh, your, draw your attention to. I want you to see that connection a lot. At least you can maybe read this psalm later on. Uh, in the day, because I don't really have time today to do that. But I just want to point out something interesting here. In Psalm 50, we have God the judge coming to his people and confronting some people about their sin. We, he confronts uh, a group of people who are just hypocritical people, who are uh, worshiping God, but living basically a double life. They're, they're living in immorality, sin, wickedness. They're ungodly, and yet they're professing to be righteous. And then he confronts other people who are just sort of ritualistic, going through the motions, going to worship, doing all the things that they're supposed to do, but their heart is, is dull, it's, it's not in it. And he confronts both of them with their sins and calls them to repentance. At the end, and he does that at the end of the book, and he, God ends his whole indictment by telling them about the proper response. And he tells them to offer right sacrifices. And then he tells the other group to, uh, as it says, to order their life rightly, to, which is to say to repent. And so that's where the book, that psalm ends. And then you have the next psalm, Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 basically clarifies, amplifies in greater detail what the proper response is when we're confronted by our sin. How do we respond properly when God confronts us with our sin? And Psalm 51 does that. Psalm, this psalm is really a manual. I'll say manual because I don't want to think of like a, a car manual where it's like just laid out like this. It's a, a manual in poetic form of, uh, on, on true confession of sin, on true repentance. 
David's repentance, David's confession of sin gives us a model to follow when we're also confronted by our sins. Another important thing to remember here is that this is the prayer of a redeemed man. David has already justified. He's already forgiven. He's, he's a man of great faith. So David here isn't seeking uh, salvation from his sins. This is not an unregenerate man seeking forgiveness. He's already saved. And you can see that verse 12 talks about that, you know, the um, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14 talks about the God of my salvation. So David already has salvation. What David here is praying for is restoration, pardon, forgiveness, so that he can be restored in his relationship with God, restored in his fellowship with God, restored in service, and restored in his conscience. But whether a person is an unregenerate person who's never repented at all in their life, or whether somebody is a Christian who's been a Christian for many years, and uh, it is and is confronted with their sin. This psalm teaches them what true repentance looks like. True repentance, is, the mechanics of it, is the same whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. And we all need to repent. We all need to continue repenting. In fact, the Christian life is a life of repentance. And the question is, do we do repentance well? Are we, do we repent like God wants us to? Because all, all of us sin, all of us uh, know the pain of a guilty conscience. And when we are confronted with our sin, what do we do? How do we return back to God? How can we be forgiven? And what kind of prayer for forgiveness will God accept? What does real repentance look like? And this psalm answers that question, and uh, certainly more than that as well. You know, I'm going to go through this psalm fairly quickly. There's 19 verses. And usually when I go through something, I go through it very carefully, very slowly. And I try to develop things. Uh, and, and, and in this psalm, I simply couldn't do that. We didn't want to be here for hours. And um, so we're going to go through it in a very, we're going to hit the high points. We're going to go through it, try to explain the whole thing in a very general way. And hopefully you'll get the sense of the psalm. And hopefully it'll be a blessing to you that way. You could probably preach a number of different sermons on this psalm. Um, and um, but yeah, just so you know, um, that's where we're going with this, how we're going to approach this. I have a, a simple three-part division for you so we can organize our thoughts around that. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of jot that down. In verses 1 to, to 9, we have David's plea for forgiveness. David's plea for forgiveness. In verses 10 to 12, we have David's prayer for restoration. David's prayer for restoration. Verses 13 to 19, uh, we have David's proper response of gratitude. And so we have David's plea, David's prayer, and David's proper response. So David's plea for forgiveness And as we go through this, we're going to try to see some of the characteristics of what true confession of sin looks like. What does true repentance of sin um, look like in the believer? So we're going to see, first of all, David confesses the basis of forgiveness. Notice what it says there. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Here, David begins his plea for forgiveness by, by appealing to God's mercy. He wants God to have mercy on him. He, he mentions God's loving kindness, his, his hesed love, his, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness to him. He, he mentions God's abundant, his great compassion. And he appeals to God's character. Notice what he appeals to, though. He appeals to God's mercy, God's kindness, God's faithfulness, God's compassion. God doesn't, he doesn't appeal to, to God's justice. He doesn't appeal to God's wisdom. He doesn't appeal to God's power. Those, those attributes have really no hope for him. All he has, all he can cling to is the mercy of God, the undeserved favor of God. <clears throat> Consider also he doesn't appeal to his own righteousness or his own deeds that he had done in, in the past. 
He doesn't go to God, oh God, remember that time when I slew Goliath. Remember when I slung that stone and I hit him in the head and he came crashing down. Remember, nobody else would go attack him. Remember how I cut off his head and I uh, defeated Israel's enemies. He doesn't remember that. He doesn't appeal to that. He doesn't appeal to that time when, you know, he brought the ark into Jerusalem and he led the people of Israel into worship. David knows that all of his sin, all of his righteous deeds are stained with sin and he can't appeal to those. By appealing to God's grace, by God's mercy, David is expressing indirectly that he deserves judgment. He has no right to, to what he asks for. He knows that he deserves death, murder, adultery, were, were sins that were punishable by death in the Mosaic Covenant. And so all he can do is just beg for mercy. There's a great little story about Napoleon Bonaparte, the uh, general and emperor of France, that is kind of helpful to illustrate and explain something about the mercy of God and, and the nature of mercy. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. And that's in sense David too. He knows what he deserves is death. He knows he deserves God's justice in that way. And so all he can plead is a plea for mercy. God, his only hope is that God would be moved by his loyal, faithful love to David, by his compassions, and forgive him. This is an important lesson for us. There's nothing external to God that causes him to forgive you and I. God's forgiveness flows out of his character. It's because God is a merciful and gracious God that he makes promises of that he will forgive sinners. It's, it's God's mercy and grace that, that calls him, that impel him to, to send his son, Jesus Christ, to this world, to, to live on this world in, and to obey the law perfectly and to die the, for sinners It's only God's mercy and grace that we can appeal to. And do you believe that? Hopefully you do. At the same time, sometimes we become too acquainted with God's grace. We can take it for granted. We can assume that it's just a given that God should just forgive us. And we pray and we confess our sins and we're kind of done with it. And oh, well, that's it. But do we realize that every time we pray, every time we plead for something, every time we, we ask God for forgiveness, we're asking God to do something that is, uh, is only based on his, his mercy, something we don't deserve, that we deserve nothing, that we have no right to anything that we ask God? Do we come with that kind of humility when we pray? I think we all lack that, don't we? think we all could grow in our sense of the wonder of God's mercy and grace and, and even just a greater humility and understanding how undeserving we are. Even as Christians, we are just simply undeserving of the least bit of God's blessings. Well, David also goes to confessing the seriousness of his sin. And so we see that in the next little section where it says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And David here uses three expressions, different expressions for forgiveness. And he uses three different words to describe the seriousness of sin. First, uh, the different expressions for forgiveness. He says, blot out. That's the idea of wiping out. It's uh, erasing. We would use the word erasing. 
in their day would be scraping off the slab or something. It's, it's removing from the record. It's, it's erasing the, the guilty record that I have. And then wash me has the picture of somebody uh, cleaning clothes by, by soaking them in water and then scrubbing them. We all have dishwasher, not dishwashers, washing machines these days, and we just put things in there and they clean it. But back in the old days, maybe your grandmother, your great-grandmother, uh, they would take the clothes and put them in that basin and they would scrub them clean with soap. Well, that's the picture here. David is wash, wanting God to wash him, to cleanse him. Then it says, purify me, or sorry, cleanse me, or it could be purify me. It's, the, it's language of the, the sacrificial system, language of being ceremonially clean. David is saying, make me clean again so I'm fit to worship you. And then David uses three words to describe his sin, transgressions. It's actually a, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it better as rebellion. And I think this is more important and more helpful for us. Sin is a crime against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Every sin is. Every sin is a rejection of God's authority in your life. That's being honest with sin. Iniquity is the idea of perversion. Uh, crooked, crooked behavior describes sin as a, um, it's being something that doesn't conform to God's law. It describes also the guilt that comes from sin. And then the word sin there is the word to miss the mark. To, or to miss the way, it's to fail to live up to God's holy standard. By using this language and by using all these expressions, David is saying that he sees himself as guilty, defiled, dirty, infected, and he desperately needs to be cleansed. He is unclean. He needs to be purified. He is unfit to come before his God, and he wants to be washed. He wants to be cleansed. He wants his guilty conscience to be at peace. And he doesn't want the stain of his sin to be on him anymore. David really here is being honest about his sin. He's agreeing with God about his sin. And he is realizing the wickedness of his actions. It's remarkable. David, if you read, uh, go, if you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what, you, what, you come, what strikes you as you read those passages is David works really, really hard to try cover his sin. He goes to extraordinary lengths and commits multitude, many more sins in trying to cover his sin. But in this psalm, David just lets his sin out there. He's not trying to cover it anymore. It's all open. He's confessing it to God, and he's, he's not trying to cover it anymore. So when we confess sin, we ought to do the same thing as well. We need to call sin for what it is. And we have a habit when we confess sin is to not call it quite as bad as it is. We can relabel thing, our sin as some kind of disorder, just kind of a, a mistake that you made, a a bad choice that you made, a character flaw, and you just, you blame kind of, it's not that bad, it's just those kind of things. And, and no, we, we need to see that the sinfulness of our sin, that it's rebellion against God. And we need to have a more serious view of our sin. Well, David knows that evil of his sin now, and that and that's why he so urgently seeks the cleansing that he asks for in these verses. But there's something that bothers David about his sin. And that comes out in the next section there. So David here in, the, in verse 3 confesses the true nature of sin. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Notice that for a second. It's saying David can't escape from his guilty conscience. It haunts him. It goes everywhere with him. When he wakes up in the morning, all he can see is, I'm a sinner. I have murdered. I have committed adultery. When he goes to eat, all he can think about is his sin, his sin, his guilt. When he goes out to play in the garden, all he can think about is his sin. 
in, in all of his activities, when he goes to bed, all he can think about is the guilt, the, the crushing guilt of his sin. He, his sin, he says, is ever before me. It's wherever I go, it haunts me. It follows me like a ghost. <clears throat> and this speaks to the great power of the conscience when it's defiled. There's so many great examples from literature about people who did great evil deeds and their conscience bothered them. Uh, maybe Lady Macbeth, you remember she com- was, wor- was uh, complicit in murder. And she sleepwalked, there's a scene where she's sleepwalking and she talks about the, the blood that's on her hands and she can't get rid of it. And there's the power of the guilty conscience. Or one more, uh, you have Bill Sykes and Oliver Twist. He killed his, his, his girl Nancy. And he's haunted by the memory of her, the ghost of her, and eventually leads to his downfall. There's a, there's a power in the defiled conscience that God has there. <clears throat> it haunts a person. And in a sense, it's a call, a reminder of the person's need to be cleansed, of the person's need for repentance. So why does his sin bother him so much? Is he, is he just worried about the loss of status as a king? Maybe people won't think him as a great king anymore. Is he worried just about the consequences of his sin? Nope. His sin bothers him and grieves him because they are offenses against the God he loves. That comes out in verse 4 there. Notice there. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. <clears throat> Maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, David, David committed a sin against Bathsheba. David considered, committed a sin against Uriah. He committed a sin against the whole nation of Israel. Why is he saying only God I have sinned against? What about those other people? Well, what David is saying is that primarily sin is, always, sin is always primarily against God first. Sin is sin because God because of who God is. Sin is wrong because it breaks God's law. God's character and God's law define what sin is. And sin is so bad because God is so good and so great. And so when you sin, it's always breaking God's law, first of all. So we define sin not because of how it affects other people, but we define sin primarily because of how it affects God or how it um, rebels against God. And as David thinks about his sin, it's just, it's painful to him to think how he has sinned against his Lord, against the God of who is so kind to him, so gracious to him, so compassionate to him, who had done so much for him, who had given him so much and he hangs his head in a sense in shame that he is so wretched to sin against such a good God. And that's what gives David grief, that he has rebelled against his God. And he, he longs to be reconciled to him. And what about you? When you sin, do you, do you sense that? Do you realize that? Are you grieved when you sin because it affects you? Or are you grieved when you sin because it is against God? Do you grieve because you have dishonored God by your sin? Do you grieve because you've saddened God by your sin? You have taken away the glory that he deserves? We'll move on to the next part of that verse. David confesses full responsibility for his sins. It says there in the next part of that verse, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. We could translate this verse as like this. I say this or I confess this so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is saying, I confess all my sins so that people know that you are right, God, when you call this a sin. You are just in all that you do, and, and I'm guilty. David understands that God is blameless in all of this. He's, God is blameless in, in his, all the consequences that uh, would come upon him. 
he accepts from God any consequences and any punishment as being just and right. You know, and David faced some pretty severe consequences, didn't he? Think about that. He lost the death, his, he lost his, that son from Bathsheba. There was the <clears throat> revolt of Absalom. There was the death of one of his sons. And for the rest of David's life, he would have to endure God's discipline. That's how great David's sin was. God disciplined for the rest of his life. And in fact, David, David actually deserved to die for his sin too. As I said, adultery and murder were crimes in the Mosaic law that, that had the punishment as death. And, and there were no sacrifices David could have offered to, to wipe that away. But David here isn't concerned with the consequences of his sins. He, he understands that God is just to punish him in any way. I want you to notice something here in David's confession that's important. There's no excuses made for his sin. You see, one of the very first things you see in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve's sin is that they blame everybody else. And if you have kids, you'll notice when you talk to them about the bad things they do, well, why did you hit your brother with the train over the head? Well, like he took my toy, and so I had to get it back. And you see what happened there. Oh, he shifted the blame to somebody else. And uh, we're good at that. We're excellent shifters of blame. But David doesn't do that here, does he? David takes full responsibility for every sin that he's committed. He knows God is just. He knows God is right. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame his father. He doesn't blame his mother. He doesn't shift blame to anybody else. He doesn't shift blame to Bathsheba. He doesn't blame any of his circumstances. He doesn't blame his constitution. It's just how I am. He doesn't blame his background. He doesn't blame his, for anything on sleeplessness. He doesn't even blame it on the fact that he took care of sheep for many years. And you go, well, why is that such a bad thing? Well, if you've taken care of sheep, I mean, they can really push your buttons. And David certainly doesn't blame the devil, does he? David blames nobody. He takes full responsibility for his sins. And so should we. We need to own up that there's no, there's no circumstances that we can ever find ourselves in that justify us sinning. But David goes beyond just saying that he has sinned. David does something that we typically don't do. He goes beyond that and to say that he is a sinner by nature. And so you can see that verse 5, David confesses the source of his sin. He says there, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So David isn't saying here that his mother was an immoral woman. He's saying that from the moment he was conceived in the womb, he was a sinner. He had a sinful human nature. He was corrupt from the very beginning. He has always been infected with his sin. Here we have the doctrine of original sin. That all of us have received from Adam a human sinful nature that is corrupt. A heart that is desperately wicked. That is bent on doing evil. This is not people's favorite doctrine. You're certainly not going to see it on um, greeting cards. This doctrine is a humbling one. And because of that, it's often one of the first doctrines that people reject as they depart from the faith. And why does David do this? Why does he bring up his, 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 the beginnings of his human depravity? Well, I think he does this to emphasize his own evil depravity, his own evil sinful nature. He, his sin wasn't just this big Mistake. He didn't just like, he wasn't just doing good most of the time and then, well, this, he got tempted and whoops, he fell and, well, that was just bad. No, David is saying that, that this has been my whole life. My whole life has just been full of sin. 
All my good works are tainted with sin. Everything's tainted with sin. And all flows, Lord, from within me. The problem isn't just some external things. It's, it's in me. I'm the problem, Lord. The, the river is polluted because the spring is polluted. The well is, the, 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 the bucket is dirty because the well is dirty. My, his, David's sin didn't make him a sinner. It's in fact David's a sinner that caused him to sin. And if you want to see more, read more about this, you can read Romans 5. Romans 5 will, will explain this more fully. All of us here are born bent on sin, bent on rebellion against God. And it's, it's true as Christians, we are born again, we're given a new heart, but we still have a remnant of the old sinful man within us. We often call that the flesh. And this flesh there still is what we have to fight against. It still causes us to to give in to temptation. It wars against our new nature in Christ and causes us to sin. And we still feel the effects of that old man, the old sinful human nature that we have. The next verse there, verse 6, David confesses his failure in godliness. This verse provides a contrast to the previous one. Verse 5 begins with, Behold, pay attention to this. I'm a big sinner. I'm a corrupt sinner from birth. And then in verse 6, it's another behold. Pay attention to this. And the idea seems to be here uh, in this verse, talking about God's requirements. I'll read the verse there. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. There's a contrast here. In a sense, David is saying, this is what I am, and this is actually what God's requirements are. God requires truth, faithfulness in the inner parts. And you could translate, and in the hidden part, you, will, you made me know wisdom. And the idea seems to be that God was looking for better things in David. God's law says, God's law is, is, is holy and just and righteous. God wants him to be, live with wisdom and truth. But David looks at that and goes, you know what? I'm, I, I failed. I, I cannot live up to that. I cannot live up to the standard. God desires heart holiness, but David says he's full of sin in his heart. And that leads to the next part of that where David confesses again his need for purity and renewal. Verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice the reference to hyssop there. You have to ask the question, why does David pray that way? Why does David mention hyssop? And what what is hyssop? And, And do I need to mention hyssop in my prayers too? I don't, is there anybody here that mentions hyssop in their prayers? No? I don't see any hands. Uh, so hyssop is a, is a plant that, that grows in a big bush, has lots of hairy stems, feather-like kind of uh, stems. And uh, people would take those stems together and they would use them as a sort of paintbrush. And uh, it was used in uh, many of the in purification processes. So Exodus 12, verse 22, hyssop is what's used to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. In Leviticus 14, hyssop is used in the purification uh, process uh, for cleansing of a leper. Hebrews 9, verse 9, talks about how Moses used hyssop to sprinkle the people with blood at the making of the Mosaic covenant. And so hyssop... By mentioning hyssop, David is referring to those purification ceremonies. In a sense, he's praying that he wants to be pure. He wants to be cleansed. James Montgomery Boyce says this about that. When David asks that, asked God to cleanse him with hyssop, he meant, cleanse me by the blood. Forgive me and regard me as cleansed on the basis of the innocent victim 
that had died. And so what David is looking towards is the shadows of, of what Christ would, would bring. And as, as New Covenant believers, we don't pray, cleanse me or purify me with hyssop anymore. What we would pray is purify me, cleanse me by the blood of Jesus Christ. Cleanse me by the Lamb of God, which takes away sins. And so here David is expressing his desire to all the stains of sin to be washed away. That, that, that he will be white as snow, whiter than snow. And David's earnest desire to be cleansed from his sin comes out in different ways and with different pictures in verses 8 and 9. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. To sum this all up, David wants to leave his spiritual de- depression behind. He wants to hear joy and gladness again. He's, in a sense, been living under the rain cloud, out of misery because of his unconfessed sin. He wants that to be broken. He wants to rejoice again. And maybe the idea here is to go back in the temple and, and truly rejoice with God's people, truly worship God from a heart that is right before him. He wants the removal of the physical effects of his sin. You can look at uh, Psalm 32. David describes that more fully there. There's a physical effect to the guilt to a guilty conscience. It starts to impact the body. And David is saying here, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Remove that from me. Let my body be rejoicing again. And verse 9 reminds us again of the big issue in David's mind. He wants to be the removal of sin, the removal of his guilt, that God would not turn his face away from his sin. And as we look through that, we see this is how you confess your sin. This is how, this is God's inspired record for us in David's example of us, how we are to confess our sins. And as you've listened to this, is this how you confess your sins? And I think all of us can say, well, no, I I think my confession of sins probably needs some work. We, in many ways, need to repent of our repentance because our repentance is not perfect. And maybe you're, as you're reading this, you go, I have sins to confess. There's things that weigh upon my conscience, things that I have to, to, to confess before God. Well, let me encourage you by a text from the New Testament. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, When we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But David isn't just interested in blotting out his sins and removing that sin and and getting forgiveness. He wants to return to a life of godliness. He wants to return to a life of spiritual joy, of spiritual health. As Thomas Watson so elegantly said, it's not enough to forsake the devil's quarter, but we must get under Christ's banner and wear his colors. And so David prays in the next session, next section for restoration. David wants to, be, wants to be restored in three areas, in obedience, in service, and in joy. You can see that verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, repentance is more than just asking for forgiveness. It's turning away from sin and and then also then returning to righteousness, to doing what's right. You see, David, it's it's a hating of sin and a loving of righteousness that causes you to forsake sin and return to doing what God wants you to. And so David desires to do what's right. Notice the word there, create in me a clean heart, O God. The word create there is a very interesting word. It's used in Genesis 1 verse 1 where it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And really every time you see this word, it's it's God doing something. It's God creating something. It's it's God doing something new. God renewing something. It's always an activity of God. So here David is pleading with God that God would create within him holy desires. That God would create in him purity of heart. 
He wants a heart that's faithful in obedience. He wants an inner spirit that is consistent in doing the will of God. There's something very interesting here that I think is very instructive for all of us. David isn't so much just concerned with his outward actions. It's not like we can sometimes do this where we just, well, you know, we, we're doing something bad and we'll just stop doing something bad. And, and we're just focused on outward actions. One of the major thrusts of David's prayers is it's inward. It's me. It's within me. I want me changed. The problem is not just outside there. It's not just my actions. My heart is bad. I want, I want my heart to be changed. I want my heart to be cleansed. Our, our thinking needs to be cha- transformed. Our desires need to be transformed. Our emotions need to be transformed. It's not enough just to change your actions. We need a transformation within us. We need to start not just to stop sin. We need to hate it. It's not enough to just do righteousness. We need to love righteousness. And so David asks God to do what only God can do. And I realize in sanctification, we have a part to play. We have the part to play of of pursuing the means of grace, of of meditating on scripture, of prayer, of attending worship service, of, of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But that in the end, ultimately, we cannot transform within us anything within us. We can't make us good. We can't transform our desires. And then ultimately, it's only God that, that can do that. David knows that only God can put what's good in his heart. And so if you look at yourself and you see there's some good things in your heart, guess what? They didn't come from you. They came from God. God put them there through his spirit, through his word. And we can praise God when there's anything good that we see within us. And so when we repent of our sins, we need to go beyond just outward things. We need to pray for the inner renewal of the soul. Notice the next part there, verse 11, the Restored service. David prays for restored service. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Maybe some of you know that this verse has uh, given, generated a lot of discussion. There's a lot of mixed opinions about what it refers to. I think the problem for some people is they don't realize the difference in the work of the Spirit from Old Testament to New Testament. They, they tend to not see that Pentecost was a groundbreaking moment, a change. There was something changed at Pentecost, that something was different in the work of the Spirit. And as you read this, I mean, you may be going, well, this, this sounds really bad. I mean, David seems to have some bad theology here. I, I'm going to Ephesians 1, verse 13, and it talks about this, you know, that we're sealed in him with this Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And we, we read other passages that talk about the Spirit as a, a guarantee of our salvation, that we'll eventually be glorified. And we're, oh yeah, you know, I get that. And then you come to this and you're like, is he saying like he can lose the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit going to be taken from him? Uh, is David worried about losing his salvation? Does he have bad theology? Why is he in my Bible now? Well, I think, again, we need to understand the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit would often come upon somebody uh, for special tasks. And it was a, often a temporary empowerment for service. So when you read the judges and God commissions the judges to, lead, to deliver Israel, well, God, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they fulfill their task. And And so that's what David's probably thinking of in this passage. That's what, it's on his mind. But he also is probably thinking of Saul and Saul's downfall. You remember Saul? Saul was disobedient and rebellious multiple times, multiple ways. God said, Saul, you know what, Saul? The, king, your, the kingdom's going to be taken away from your family. I'm going to give it to somebody else. And then he, God sends Samuel to uh, go anoint another king, and Samuel anoints uh, David. And in 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14, says this that's very interesting. After Saul, David is anointed, it says this, 
The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And then the next verse is a contrast there where it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And so what you see there is the spirit of God coming upon David and the spirit of God leaving Saul. And of course, as the Lord rejected Saul, Saul's basically his life descended into a moral spiral and ended with consulting a witch and killing himself. And I think David has this in mind as he prays this. I mean, when you think about Saul's, Saul's sins, they don't seem so bad as when we look at David's sins. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. And David had much more, you know, he, he had much more light in a sense, more, he had been, God had given him so much more in a sense. David knew what was better. And, and Saul, you know, he was disobedient a couple of times. And so as David's thinking about that, David prays this because he doesn't want to be removed as a king from Israel. He, does, he wants to continue. He wants the spirit to continue to empower him to be Israel's king. And God did listen to this prayer because God didn't take the kingdom away from David. He could have. He could have rightly caused him to be put to death. But he graciously allowed him to reign because he had made a covenant with David, a covenant that guaranteed that he would have an everlasting dynasty. And so as as new covenant believers, as we come to this kind of passage here, we don't necessarily pray like this anymore. We would pray in a different way. And I think we would pray like this, that, you know, when, when, if you have sinned, you would say, God, you know what? Restore me. Restore me to be able to serve your people. Restore me so I can serve in your church, that I can minister to, to your people. I think that's really how we would pray because unconfessed sin in the life of the believer hinders service in God's church. It makes service to God um, difficult, if not impossible. The next thing David prays for is renewed joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Because of David's unconfessed sin, he, he lost the joy that his salvation brought him. And now he prays that he wants that to be returned to him. Unconfessed sin brings loss. That's why David's praying for these things to be restored to him. It will sully your righteous character. It'll hinder your service to God. It'll bring you grief and it'll bring you sorrow. Unconfessed sin in your life is like a, is like a vacuum. It, it sucks the life out of your... It sucks the spiritual joy out of your life. And it leaves you on a spiritual life support. I think this is something to consider. We need to be warned about the dangers of unconfessed sin. When you sin, confess it right away. Bring it to God. Don't delay. Don't wait. We now move to David's proper response of gratitude. What is the right response? What is the expected response of one who has been forgiven so much? What was David's response to the forgiveness that God gave him for murder and adultery? Well, there's four things. There's evangelism, there's praise, there's true worship, and there's intercession. First, we'll look at evangelism. Verse 13, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Here David promises, he vows that as he's received forgiveness, I am going to tell other sinners about your forgiveness, O God. I'm going to tell other people who need your forgiveness um, that God is a God of forgiveness, that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of grace, that he wipes away sins. He, He cleanses you whiter than snow. The God delights in mercy. He wants to tell other sinners that. He wants to tell others about how they can be reconciled to God. And he has confidence that God will use him to bring other sinners to repentance. Certainly God has used this psalm, Psalm 51, in the life of 
many people to bring them to repentance. And I hope today, even if you are, have never repented of your sin, that this psalm would be a wake-up call and, a, and bring you to repentance. David certainly had confidence that God would use his word to, to, do, to bring sinners to repentance. You know, Spurgeon says this, the great preacher, evangelist, he says, those who've experienced sweet forgiveness make the best evangelists. And the greater we know our sins and the greater we, the sense, we have a sense of the mercy and uh, forgiveness of God, the result of that should be a greater desire to tell other people about how they can be forgiven, how they can be made right with God, how they can be cleansed. And I pray or I encourage you today, tell other people about the gospel. You're the only one, only the Christian has the cure for their, their guilt, the cure for their sinful hearts. Open your mouth and, and declare the gospel to other people. The next thing David wants to do is to praise God. Verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Consider who's writing this. It's David. David, the sweet singer of Israel, the one who the great hymn writer of Israel who wrote all sorts of hymns, who, who played instruments so well. What probably happened is with, when he's dealing with his unconfessed sin and his conscience bothers him, he's not singing so much. He's not playing his instruments so much anymore. That's, that, that guilt has suppressed the joy and the praise that he would normally have. And so here he, he prays that he would be able to open up his lips again and praise the Lord. Notice what he says, how specific he is about his sins there. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He's definitely thinking here about the murder of Uriah that he, ultimately he was responsible for. And as he thinks about that, he again prays that God would forgive him. His, you can just see the sense of his grief over his sin by his repeated request for forgiveness. You know, praise is always the sweetest and always the loudest of those who rightly understand their depravity and the extraordinary grace of God. David understood that, and that's why he wants to praise God again, even louder than before. The next section there talks about true worship. David vows to give true worship to God. You know, worship, praise is a part of worship, but worship is more than praise. Praise and worship includes more than that. And David has learned something important about worship. I, I imagine he would have gone to the temple and continued to worship God, doing about his business, but he did it with this burden of sin on his shoulders. And I think he learned something important about true worship through this experience. What, notice verse 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David is, is, is not saying here that God doesn't, didn't, doesn't like sacrifices or that God didn't really want people to give him sacrifices. I mean, God instituted the Mosaic law with specified sacrifices for different offenses. But God instituted the sacrifices not for himself, but for the people to teach them about the gospel. God doesn't need bulls. God doesn't need lambs and sheep and, and goats. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need grain offerings. God doesn't need any of those things. He doesn't want that necessarily. What God wants is the heart. And David understood this more clearly now. He understood what what truly made a, real, a sacrifice that pleases God. Notice what it says there. The sacrifices of God are this, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. What does it mean that, that it's a broken spirit that we are to give God? Well, this is a heart that has been crushed 
uh, this is a heart that has been, where pride has been broken down, where self-will has been crushed. It's a heart that's dressed, distressed over its sins. It's a, it's a heart that's humble, bowed low in the dust. It's a heart that's ready to do God's will, ready to submit to whatever God calls it to do. We know God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, even through this preaching right now and through this passage, I mean, the the aim here is we want to humble those who are proud and we want to lift up those who are bowed down. We're dealing with sin here. We're dealing with repentance, confession of sin because we want... Uh, God wants us to be joyful Christians. He wants us to have joy. And God, and when we bring to God a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God does not despise that. God accepts that kind of offering. God joyfully forgives the sinner who comes to him with this kind of sacrifice. He loves that kind of sweet-smelling offering. God delights. God delights in showing mercy. Think about that. Like for us, when someone sins against us, how hard it is for us to forgive other people, especially when they've wounded us deeply. And yet we've wounded God much more deeply than anyone could wound us. And yet God loves to forgive. He's so quick to forgive. He's so generous in his forgiveness. And so since, you know, what, what kind of, the prodigal son really, illustrates this where the father comes running to greet his son who is far off in sin he he runs and embraces him and welcomes him his home that that whole picture emphasizes god's love and delight in forgiving sinners and so today if you're far off in the land of sin and shame then come back to god return to him Come to the Lord for forgiveness. Repent and confess your sins as David did, and you will find forgiveness. You will be cleansed and whiter than snow, cleaner than any washed clothes. Well, one more last thing. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for holding on. Just give me another like five minutes here, and we'll get through this together. I know this is a lot. In some ways, it's a big fire hose of truth, and you're all swallowing it and trying to hope I'll stop one time. But the last thing that David promises to do, the last thing David vows is that, is that of intercession. Verse 18 and 19. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. You know, David's sin doesn't just impact him. It impacts other people around him. And in fact, it impacts the whole nation. If you look at Israel's history, and you can read the book of Kings for this, what you see is that Israel's rise and fall often is connected to Israel's king. When Israel's king did well, well, the people did well. When Israel's king went downward, well, the people went downward. And David has just committed some rather gross and and, uh, serious sins. And he's worried about the effect that's going to have on God's people. And so here he prays. He vows to pray for his people. And so here he lifts his voice in intercession. Without trying to get too many of the details here, I think the idea here is that David is praying for both a material blessing on Israel and a spiritual blessing on Israel. And in fact, when you look at the Mosaic law, those two are connected for Israel. When Israel was doing well spiritually, she also was doing well sp- materially, physically as a nation. And so he, David prays for both. He prays that really that Israel would offer to God right offerings, just like David is promising that he's going to offer to God a broken and contrite heart, and, and he's going to um, worship God properly with his heart. He wants the whole nation to join him in that kind of worship, Join him in spiritual worship. You can see just that the, the, the Israel will offer bulls. It's interesting because bulls would have been the most expensive kind of offering. 
And uh, he basically wants a people, the whole nation, to be so thankful that they'll bring to, to God that which is most expensive. And so here David prays that the whole nation will be built up and strengthened, both materially and spiritually. And certainly we can do the same. It's certainly hard to pray for other people's spiritual health when your spiritual health is in the tank and suffering. But after you've confessed your sin, after God has forgiven you and renewed you and restored you, then you are again free to unhypocritically pray for the blessing of other people, pray for their spiritual growth. Certainly we should do that. You know, what a psalm to look at before we can go to the Lord's Supper. Certainly, I didn't plan it like that. David, um, you see, David could appeal to the promise of forgiveness. And he, he knew somehow that God would accomplish that forgiveness, right? David didn't know how God could for, was going to exactly forgive his sin. It was the coming of the Messiah was still in the shadows. But we today who live in the new covenant, we know. We know that as one of David's descendants that came to accomplish uh, forgiveness. It was one of David's descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered under the wrath of God so that we could go free. And so while we can certainly praise God for his forgiveness, we also have the, the fulfillment of those promises. And we know God will forgive us based upon what he's done. And so this is a meal... This Lord's Supper is a meal, a time for celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. But before we do that, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, Father, we have so much to be grateful for. If we have tasted the goodness of your forgiveness, the, the delight of having our sins washed away, of our guilt being lifted off of our shoulders... Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to give a proper response of thanksgiving, Lord. May our hearts be so thankful. May our love burn bright for Jesus Christ. May we give ourselves wholeheartedly, soul and body, to the service of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be able to say that if we had 10,000 lives, it would be not enough to serve you. Lord, Fan our affections for you this day through this sermon. Cause those who have never repented of their sins to repent of their sins for the first time because of this psalm here today. Lord, use your, use your servant for this purpose today. Use my words to glorify yourself in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.